Procrastinating, a term most often used by the millennial generation, is a method of putting something off, delaying, or postponing something by taking part in the act of baking. To Procrastibaking, a place to talk about our baking obsessions and avoid doing everything else. Coming to you from Southern California, I'm Louisa. And from North Carolina, I'm Rachel. Rachel, I have something I'm dying to know. Did you watch Sesame Street as a child? And if so, who was your favorite character? I did. I loved Sesame Street. I loved watching Big Bird and Snuffleupagus. Um, these days, I probably relate more to Oscar the Grouch, but back then, um, Cookie Monster was definitely my favorite. Oh, I'm so happy. I'm so happy to hear that, Rachel. Oh, I'm so happy. I'm so happy to be here and for me to be interview guest on the podcast today. Yes, me ready. <laughs> oh, well, hello, Cookie Monster. <laughs> hello. Uh, it's so sweet of you to want to be an interview guest on our show today, but we didn't have you scheduled. How did you even get into this recording session? Oh, well, that, yes, that interesting story. Yes, me, me publicists say, you talk about me favorite food today, cookies. So <laughs> me say, me have to be on Procrastinate Baking Podcast to be cookie expert for episode. Well, your publicist is correct. Today is our cookie episode. And while we appreciate your cookie expertise, Louise and I did lots of prep and feel pretty good about handling this episode on our own. However, can I offer you one of my cookies that I made for this episode for your troubles? Oh, well, me sad to not do podcast today. Aww. But me always happy to eat cookies. Why, this is a delicious cookie, Rachel. Me belly is happy. Me go now. Okay, bye. <laughs> wow, that was an exciting and random visit from Cookie Monster. Rachel, given his reaction, I'm very curious to hear about your cookies. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about them? I'd be glad to. Um, as part of our cookie episode, we thought it would be fun to celebrate National Oreo Day, which is on March 6th by recreating the Oreo cookie. Um, so that's what Cookie Monster was enjoying, was one of my homemade Oreos. And I decided I'm calling them Thoreos. <laughs> Thoreos? Thoreos. Like F-A-U. And maybe it's a bad pun. Anyway, oh, so much. <laughs> Sorry, procrastinators. Took me a hot second to get it. <laughs> so I looked at a couple different recipes. I looked at Brave Tart's recipe because it's kind of all over the internet. But the one I ended up going with was one from Bless This Mess, Please. And I chose it because it looked like the simplest. Um, Brave Tart called for some kind of specialty ingredients that I don't really usually have a lot of luck finding here in rural North Carolina. And the photos of this one looked exactly what I was looking for for the cream filling, which when I started looking for recipes was the part that kind of made me the most nervous. Because I think if I remember right, I should have looked this up. I don't think Oreos actually have any dairy in them. You're right. They don't. So I knew that we would be using dairy most likely to recreate them. So I wanted to find a recipe where the photo looked like the Oreo cream filling to see if it would match up. And this one did a really good job. It called for Hershey's special dark cocoa, but because I'd already ordered um, Jet 
what was it? I think it was called Bloomer Jet Black Cocoa from Olive Nation. I decided to sub it out um, because they were both Dutch cocos, which we learned on our Fake It Your segment. We can do that. So I, I subbed it out and made very black wafers, but I was so upset. My first batch of them spread out. And I think it's because the sugar in the recipe is powdered sugar. So I feel like it's like real fine. So it's already like closer to melting. Yeah. But interestingly, when I put the same batter in that hadn't been chilled any longer because I pulled it both out of the fridge at the same time and baked it a second time, those didn't spread. So my second half of the batch was okay. Huh, that's so bizarre. And you said it it didn't, it wasn't because they were kept in the fridge longer. They were in there the same amount. No, I pulled both discs of dough out at the same time because I was worried if I left the other one in, it would be like rock hard and I wouldn't be able to roll it out. That's bizarre. Yeah. So I I don't know. (laughs) Maybe my oven was just running too hot in the beginning and like opening it and taking them out. Like, Pull it down a degree or two. I don't know. Maybe. Um, Can I ask you, so what ended up being in the filling? I'm curious. So the filling was really interesting. It was melted butter and powdered sugar. It was four cups of powdered sugar and melted butter. I think it was half a cup. And then you add, you mix that together. And then you add water, a teaspoon at a time until it makes like a dough. Okay. And then I rolled it into logs, chilled it, and then cut off. So that it, would, it was supposed to be perfectly round. But something I struggle with is logs of dough. Like my logs of dough are always like oval shaped. I can't make round logs of dough. So my filling was like oval shaped my, where my cookies were round. Um, so I ended up peeling or grabbing chunks of it off and like rolling it into a ball and then flattening it between my fingers okay. to make the filling round. Um, but it, I mean, the filling was spot on to me. It tasted just like Oreo cream filling. That's awesome. It's always so satisfying, especially when we're doing these recreations. Like you have this idea in your head already of what it needs to be. And when it approximates it, you're like, yes, so satisfying. Yeah, I was very excited. And the one thing I was, my low for this bake is that I used my um, engraved rolling pen to kind of get a design on it, hoping it would make the look of the Oreos. But they baked out. I keep having this problem. <laughs> All my cookies, the design baked out. Oh, um, bummer. So the look, they didn't look super Oreo, but they were Oreo-y, but they were black and white. And I would definitely make them again. They were really good. Awesome. So all sweets. All sweets? I think it sounded like pretty sweet. <laughs> Mostly <laughs> all sweet. Yeah. Mostly all sweet. Maybe the low, the only low is that you had the, the spreading, but then it corrected itself. So. Yeah. So I don't know what to call that there. <laughs> Jimmy sweet. <laughs> A solo. A solo. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Semi-sweet. I love that too. Semi-sweet. So how did yours go? Mine also went pretty well, Rachel. I feel like lately I've been having more luck with our streaks of sweets. Well, I don't know. I didn't have that good of a time with my 80s bake. Yeah. <laughs> um, other than that. <laughs> other than that, things have been pretty good. So, yeah, I was really excited to try using a Dutch cocoa powder for, I think, the first time. I usually just use the Hershey's, the regular Hershey's. And I ordered, it's called Drost Dutch baking powder from Holland. I ordered Ew. it on. Yeah, it's got like an interesting picture of what looks like a nun, maybe. Is she a nun? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's a nun or maybe some other kind of regal lady. I have no idea. But anyway, um, I ordered it because I was just wanting to try um, something different. And I also was sort of inclined to try the Hershey's Special Dark, but I was like, why not try something a little bit more interesting? So I went on YouTube and I saw a YouTube video of 
America's Test Kitchen. I never really watch it at all or know anything about it, but they did an episode on cocoa powders where they did like a blind taste testing of cookies made with different types of cocoa powder. Cool. And this one, yeah, it was really cool. I feel like I learned a lot and it was like a quick four or five minute video. And this one was the one that um, was selected as the the best tasting cocoa powder because they said that it had the highest fat content and the lowest amount of starch. So it's giving you like a really rich, like fudgy flavor. And I found that to be pretty true in the results of the cookies that I got. I love like just the the dark color. Like this is definitely what I should have used for my Matilda cake. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, I really enjoyed the flavor. Like it really was just like, because I know that with Dutch, we learned that it's cutting down on that bitterness. Yes. Yeah, I really do feel like I got like a richer, just a richer profile in general of of flavor. Are you going to keep ordering this cocoa powder? I think so. I don't think I can go back to the Hershey's Natural now. Oh. Not that I tried this, you know, because it's really good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and so, yeah, the cookies, the recipe I chose was from the Tasty website. Yeah. Which sometimes I'm skeptical, but Tasty was what I used when I made my croissant. So I've had some good successes with it. And um, I find, like, reading the comments for these kind of sites very helpful. So you can, like, make small modifications. But, yeah, the cookies turned out great. And the filling, my filling was half a cup of butter, two cups of powdered sugar, and a teaspoon of vanilla is what they called for. And as you're, like, mixing it together for a while, it was, like, super crumbly. And I was like, I don't know how this is going to turn out into something I could Mm -mm. put. Um, But I just kept going. And eventually it does get to that Oreo-like consistency, which is great. Yeah, and it just, they, they look good and they tasted really good. I was really happy with everything. Um, I would totally make them again. I love your idea of using a, a rolling pin that has designs on it. That, that's a really cool idea. I do have one that has like penguins on it. <laughs> Maybe I could try it. But also, <laughs> I also ran into that problem you mentioned too, where it like bakes out of the cookies. I've tried it before with shortbread. I didn't have that yes. experience. So Maybe we need to do some research as to how to make that work. <laughs> yeah, that'll be our, our next procrastinating takes on segment. Yes. Um, but yeah, other than that, I mean, everything tasted delicious. And I think this is my new, my new favorite cocoa powder to use in baking. Ooh. Um, did you sample your unbaked cookie dough? I didn't. I usually would. I have been like a little cautious because I'm still pregnant. Mm. So I ha- I haven't been tasting it because it had raw egg in it. Raul did though, and he thought it tasted good. And you really liked the raw cookie dough. I, yeah, I did, and mine didn't have eggs in it, um, which you can still get sick from the the raw flour. But I was surprised my recipe didn't have any eggs in it. That's and this is a very interesting recipe that you use. I'm curious. Yeah, and I looked at so I looked at the tasty one. I looked at Braveheart, and I looked at this one, and I just felt good about this one. So that's why. Yeah, I chose it. No, um, I think it's cool to have such we we got such good results and the, the ingredients are pretty they're pretty different depending on which recipe you use, but that's cool. Um, Louisa, I'm going off script a little bit here. I have a fun fact of the day. Ooh. Did you know that Oreo is the usurper of the chocolate biscuit cookie? Really? Yes. Um so Hydrox was first and Hydrox was the original sandwich cookie with chocolate wafers and a cream filling. And every yeah, and they, well, they quit making them for a while, and a couple years ago, they started remaking them. So I'm thinking we're going to need to do like a taste test on our Munchable series. Oh, that would be good. To compare the two cookies. But yeah, so Oreo 
completely stole almost the whole concept from Hydrox. Um, Hydrox had um, a mountain laurel as the design that's printed on the cookie, and so does Oreo. And the name Oreo comes from, we think, Oreo Daphne, which is like the technical name for that type of flower. So they like double stole things from Hydrox. Um, and then eventually, as Oreo started to become more popular, they raised the price of Oreo to make it look like Hydrox was the knockoff cookie. <gasps> and then they eventually won that race, drove Hydrox out of business. Um, Hydrox cookies were sold a couple times, different cookie companies. Dang. Um, so, that is <laughs> so when I read about this, I was like, when I open a bakery, like I want that marketing company. <laughs> <laughs> they were ruthless. <laughs> That's who I want. Yes. Um, so I just thought that was really interesting. And then um, I don't remember how long they were out of business, but I do remember um, the first time I learned about this, we were um, living in South Carolina and working at the governor's school. And I found Hydrox cookies at um, Big Lots. Okay. And that's what got me looking because I was like, oh, it's like a knockoff Oreo. And then I looked it up and I was like, actually, <laughs> Oreo is a, a knockoff Hydrox. Wow. I love me some cookie drama, man. I'm glad you told me this. <laughs> This is fascinating. And yeah, it's, um, it's interesting just learning more about these companies and how they got to where they are and the people they trampled on along the way, <laughs> right? All for this, for the sake of baked goods. Yeah. And I don't, I should have printed it out. So I had it in front of me, but they're like, even their slogans were similar. It was like a chocolate cream filled cookie. And then one was like a cookie. I don't know. It was like the reverse of that, but the, saying it out loud now doesn't make sense. But it was almost identical, just like flipped. Oh, wow. That so was very interesting. They didn't even try to make it seem like a whole new. <laughs> yeah. So we'll have to go on the hunt for Hydrox cookies so we can have a taste test. And cookies and cream ice cream used to be made with Hydrox. Ooh. That's why it was cookies and cream and not Oreo ice cream, which sometimes you'll now see Oreo ice cream. Yeah. And that's because it's made with Oreos now, but before it was made with Hydrox. Wow, that is fascinating. And do you know um, around like when the, I guess the Hydrox cookie was invented? Um, I do. Let me see. I forget. I want to say like 1912, but I don't know if that makes sense. Um, yeah, that sounds like Here we go. Yeah, so Oreo was 1912 and Hydrox was 1908. Okay. Yeah, you were right. Early 1900s. That is, well, thank you for this. <laughs> drama, Rachel. I love learning more about this. Very, I thought it was interesting. Very shady Oreo. Naughty. <laughs> <laughs> Your cookies are like... <laughs> right? <laughs> this season, we have been doing some throwbacks to baking history and trends of the past. This episode's Bake in the Day is all about the history of Cookie Monster's favorite treats, the chocolate chip cookie. Lou, why don't we share a little bit about what we learned? Gladly. So I did some research via Google and discovered that the chocolate chip cookie was invented by a woman named Ruth Wakefield. Ruth was the owner of the Toll House restaurant in Whitman, Massachusetts, and she created what was then called the Toll House Chocolate Crunch Cookie in the late 1930s. Um, and what was cool to learn was that it was originally created to be um, eaten along with ice cream. Cookies and ice cream. So her cookie became so popular that it was featured on the Betty Crocker radio show. And eventually Ruth sold the rights to the recipe and the name Toll House to a company we are all familiar with, Nestle. Ruth sold the recipe for $1, which she said she never received. 
However, she did receive a lifelong supply of chocolate from Nestle and also served as a consultant. Um, Rachel, would you sell the rights to your cookie recipe for a lifelong supply of chocolate? I'm just wondering if that would be <laughs> That's a very tempting offer. I don't know if they understand how much chocolate I can consume in my lifetime. <laughs> That's true. I think you would get your chocolates worth out of it, so it might be beneficial. <laughs> <laughs> and the Betty Crocker radio show, like, why is that not still a thing? We need that. I know. that Now, Betty Crocker, this is going off script again, but I was reading a little bit about Betty Crocker, and I did not know that that is a fictional person. Yeah, she's completely made up. I didn't know that. And so I read that, like, at the time of this, that this was happening, that they featured her recipe on the Betty Crocker radio show, like it was just different women playing as Betty Crocker or like representing the brand as Betty Crocker, but it's not, there's not like an actual person that's Betty Crocker. That's a little bit sad, right? That's like when you realize there's no tooth fairy. Yeah, it was a little interesting to learn that. It was shocking, dare I say. Learning a lot of shocking things today. <laughs> All this drama revolving <laughs> around cookies. Right? The cookie industry and like send that poor lady her dollar, man. Like, Come on, built an empire with inflation now, please. (laughs) With inflation, (laughs) she's probably dead. You can cut this part out, (laughs) Rob. So, but you know, maybe her if she had children or grandchildren, right? Yeah, her heirs give this family their dollar with inflation. (laughs) I wonder if that um, restaurant is still in existence. Oh, that's a good question. Because how cool would it be to go there? Yes, that would be very cool. I wonder, they probably can't serve that cookie anymore. No, I guess not. Or maybe they call it the Nestle cookie again. Yeah, but um, if we ever make a trip together to Massachusetts, we'll scope it out. (laughs) We keep having this strange bucket list of places to go to. (laughs) We have a very odd list. That'll be our season four challenge. (laughs) To actually visit these places. Yeah, that we talk about. Wow. So the cookie drama continues. Okay, we are going to keep this cookie party going by sharing another cookie-inspired bake we prepared for this week. Rachel, another beloved American cookie, are Girl Scout cookies, and our listeners may not know this, but you were a Girl Scout for a very long time. I was. I was a Girl Scout from second grade through 12th grade. Um, I had a great time in Girl Scouts, learned a lot, had a lot of fun. The one thing we did every year was sell cookies, and I got to be really good at it. I'm not going to lie. Um, to where I was selling like thousands of boxes of cookies every cookie season. Wow, really? You are busy. <laughs> yeah, my sister and I would go door to door. Um, we had booth sales. We had, you know, call our relatives, let them know. And we got to keep a good portion of the money. That money paid for our camping trips or our trip to the beach. We went to like, um, Do- is it, oh goodness, is it called Dollywood? Yeah. Yeah, we went to Dollywood. We went to Medieval Times, and all that was paid for by cookie money. So I've also eaten my fair share of Girl Scout cookies, and I have it, like, ingrained in my head because my mom used to be involved at, like, the council level. So that when the cookies came in on the big trucks, like, we would go and unload the cookies for the whole, like, unit. And that was almost always around Valentine's Day. So I've got it in my head, like, Valentine's Day, start looking for Girl Scouts, because that's when I can get my cookie pick. <laughs> I love that. And I'm very curious. I'm not, I'm not super familiar with how Girl Scouts work, but you guys will like earn badges too, right? Because I want to know what badges you earned. We did. Um, I loved it. Like I was all about like activities and that kind of stuff when I was a kid. 
Um, yeah. So we did history badges where you had to like interview your family members about like their oral history. We did sewing. I learned how to make a skirt. Don't ask me to do it again. Um, <laughs> CPR, babysitting, first aid safety, camping. Like one time we did a camping trip. It, big, it was big in Girl Scouts to do like a leave no trace, but we weren't that extreme. Like where you'd like dug a hole and use that as your bathroom. But we did oh. do things like where we like, you know, washed our dishes and like bins and stuff to like reduce our waste and that kind of stuff. Um, so lots of camping, hiking. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was everything. That's one thing I liked about Girl Scouts is anything you were interested in, they had a badge for. If you were interested in fashion design, there was a badge for that. If you wanted to be more outdoorsy, there was like a rock climbing one. So it just depended on what you wanted to do. That is super cool. So given all your expertise with the Girl Scout cookies, what is your favorite Girl Scout cookie? Ooh, so there are different cookie bakers and they make slightly different variations of the recipes, but it's either a peanut butter patty or a tag along. It's the, the chocolate with peanut butter filling. Those are my favorite. Mm, I do love tag along. And I have just a little funny story about being a Girl Scout, I guess. Um, I was coming down with something at the same time as we were selling cookies. And we didn't realize it till like later that night that I wasn't feeling well. And I'd gone to bed probably with a fever, I think, from stretching my memory, but it would make sense. Um, my mom came in to check on me and I sat up in my sleep and tried to sell her a box of cookies. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, this business never stopped. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's funny. Wow. You were like in the zone. Yes, apparently so. But I loved it. It was good. Um, <laughs> and so I, I've considered getting involved like as a, a leader. I was a leader, uh, an assistant leader when I was in high school for a young brownie troop and they were so adorable. So I think now that we're kind of in a place that we're going to be for a while, I might get involved again. Yeah, that would be great. You'd be so good at it. And you never know, maybe you could encourage other girls to, I don't know, like, could you bake as part of a badge? Like, that would be neat. Yes, for sure. And maybe you'll encourage them to also sleepwalk and sell cookies. (laughs) (laughs) You're not selling enough cookies if you're not doing it in your sleep, too. (laughs) (laughs) That is like the best story I've heard in a long time. (laughs) So, Louisa, do you have a favorite Girl Scout cookie? Um, yes, I think I'm torn between either Thin Mints. I really mm, love Thin Mints. Those are good. Or the Samoa cookies. Those are also delicious. Yeah, those are Mike's favorite. So we have a lot of those in the house, too, usually. Yeah. Okay. You probably know where this is going, but because we both love Girl Scout cookies so much, we both decided to make Girl Scout cookie-inspired bakes for this episode. Rachel, tell us about your Girl Scout cookie bake. So um, Thin Mints is actually the cookie that I chose to use for our Girl Scout cookie bake. I made a variation on a recipe um, called chocolate biscotti pudding. I got this recipe at Cookbook Club several years ago, and they made a chocolate pudding with crumbled up biscotti. And I wanted to make it for my coworkers a couple years ago. But didn't have any biscotti, didn't want to go to the store to get biscotti, didn't want to make biscotti. But I had Thin Mints in my freezer, and I was like, you know what, they're kind of crunchy. I think they'll work. And boy, do they work. They're really good. (laughs) So you basically (laughs) just make a homemade chocolate pudding, and then um, at the end, crush up Thin Mints and put it in there, stir it in. Um, This pudding claims that it gets like set enough that you could slice it and serve slices of it. I've never had that happen. So Slices of the pudding? Yeah, it says, um, 
that you put it in a pie plate and cover it overnight and then remove the top sheet of plastic, invert the pudding onto a serving plate and cut into wedges. Interesting. So I've yet to have that happen. So lately I've been making it and serving it like an in individual jars. That way I can take it to work, top it with some whipped cream and put the lid on it. But it's very good. It, so I think it would be good if you like um, the tag along would probably be a good one because that peanut butter chocolate would be good. Um, or even just the one that's like a peanut, just a peanut butter, the dosy dough, that would probably be good in there too. Ooh, yeah. You could add a lot of variety. You could bake it yours. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds delicious. So all sweets again, no lows, yeah? Yes, I was really pleased. That sounds great. Um, I'm definitely going to have to try this because it's cool to like branch out and try things that are not, um, you know, cookies or brownies. You've been doing a good job with like your ice cream and now this with the pudding. So cool to kind of branch out to other things. It's fun. Yeah. So Lou, tell us what you made. Okay. So I mentioned that Samoas were one of my um, favorite Girl Scout cookies. And so I made Samoa brownies. Ooh. And um, I did make a Samoa brownie recipe like a few, a while ago, like five or six years ago that had like a ganache on top of it, which was, I remember them being really good, but This time around, I think I finally have perfected what a Samoa brownie is supposed to taste like. And I have learned from my previous mistakes. So sometimes when I look at a recipe now and I see that things differ from like my favorite recipe. So for example, I looked at this recipe and I thought like the way the ingredients were compiled to make the brownie were good. But like the brownie recipe itself, I thought I could use a better recipe. Mm. So I've been pulling from like my old tried and true favorites and kind of cobbled them together to make these brownies. So I I know I'm I'm learning, I'm getting better. So for my brownie recipe, I used the better than a boyfriend brownie recipe that I talked about a while ago when we did, was it a brownie episode? I've talked about this recipe before. Yes. I remember you talking about it, but I can't remember what episode we were in. Yes. Um, you guys, I highly recommend Better Than a Boyfriend Brownie Recipe. <laughs> it is so good. And so that's like now my one of my go-tos. So I use that instead of the recipe that I recommended for the caramel. I used um, the salted caramel instead of just using like, I think the recipe called for melting down caramel candies, you know, those individually wrapped ones. Yeah. Um, I decided to just make my own salted caramel that I used in season one for my peach cobbler. Mm. And I like the the salted addition. I think that adds something special. And then in my brownie recipe, instead of using regular chocolate chips, I use those. Are they called sea salt caramel? What are they? Morsels? Morsels. Yeah. Yeah. The ones that you sent me, Rachel. Again, just to add that salted caramel flavor that I love so much. And then, yeah. And then you're just like browning coconut flakes that you're mixing in with the caramel for the topping. And then I melted some chocolate for like the, that little decorative effect on top, like you would with the cookies, the drizzled chocolate. And um, no, I think overall, everything tasted so good. I was so happy. I could have cried. Um, I mean, I cry almost all the time now anyway. <laughs> I, I was very pleased. Like I do, we've talked about this before, but I tend to be really hard on myself and like judgy about what I make and this was like one of the rare times where I tasted it and I was like, there's nothing that I feel like I could have done. Wow. You know what I mean? Like, and it's good. Like I'm trying to allow myself to have these little moments where I'm not critical, like just be happy. You made something really good. And I would be, Raul was so sweet. He was like, I could see you like selling these 
in like wow. a store. Um, yeah, which was really sweet of him to say. Like that was that made me feel really accomplished. So yeah, I had a great time. They look they look delicious. They tasted really good. Um, all sweet, no low. Yeah, I saw your photo of these. Um, is an excellent photo. They look gorgeous and they're very mouth-watering. So I definitely would like to try one. Thank you. Yeah, I'm starting to, Raul usually takes my photos from me, but he let me, um, he let me. (laughs) 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 He, um, he let me borrow his camera so that I could practice doing them on my own. So I'm using like his guidance and trying to develop a better eye for photography, which is another thing we've talked about wanting to get better at, just learning how to plate and photograph our babies. So yeah, I think it turned out pretty well. Procrastination, you may remember that in season one, we covered a donut shop's March Madness challenge, and we were so inspired that we decided to do one of our very own. We are pitting our previous bakes against each other as part of Procrastibaking's March Madness. Our listeners have been voting on social media for their favorites, and now that we're a few days into the competition, it's time to get an update of who our winners are. Our first matchup was between Cheese Sablés and the Brazilian guava cake. And I have heard from my insiders that the cheese sablés were the winner of that competition. Additional matchups that we have this week are the pecan blueberry cream cheese d'aquois versus chocolate divinity. We also have banana dulce de leche cupcakes versus Luisa's Matilda cake. And we will have the sticky toffee banana pudding versus the peach blueberry cobbler. A reminder to our listeners to continue voting on social media for your favorite bakes, and we will continue to update you on the progress of the winners. Procrastibakers, we've mentioned that this season we've been interested in learning about alternative baking methods to accommodate different dietary needs. Today for our alternative baking segment, we have Brittany Baker joining us to discuss her company, FOMO Baking, and allergen-free baking. Welcome, Brittany. Thank you for having me. We're excited that you're here. I have to ask, um, it's kind of an awkward first question, but I find it very interesting when people have names that match their career. For example, my plumber's name is Mr. Waters. So is Baker your actual last name? Baker is my actual last name. Um, When my husband and I met, I was still a lawyer and baking was really just something I did as a hobby and, you know, a pipe dream when I was sitting at the office for the 18th hour in a row. Um, But that is my real legal last name. (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) That is awesome. So, Brittany, you have had a really interesting journey towards allergen-free baking, and we were wondering if you could give our listeners a brief summary of what led you to start baking that way. Of course. So, my journey for me began about a decade ago. During my second year of law school, I was diagnosed with celiac disease back before being gluten-free was trendy and back before people even really talked about gluten or the buzzword is today. And so I started to cook and bake a lot for myself back then just because there wasn't a lot out in the marketplace that I could safely eat. Um, Today, it's much easier to find products. Um, If you walk up and down any supermarket, there are specialty items all the time catering to different dietary needs, but a decade ago, that wasn't the case. And um, I really started to love it. And as I'd mentioned, it was kind of always my pipe dream. And in the condensed version of the story, um, ultimately, after my daughter was born and I was debating whether or not to go back to my career as a lawyer, 
um, I ultimately decided that I wanted to do something that I felt so passionate about. And originally, I'd been thinking about just doing something with a dedicated gluten-free bakery, which truthfully, there are a ton of, especially in the New York tri-state area. Um, But when I started to do more market research and realize how many people are affected by not only celiac disease, but other food intolerances and allergies, um, it seems that there was nothing out there that was shipping nationwide fresh baked products that had none of the major allergens, the top eight in them. And so that was kind of the need that I was really hoping to fill so that no matter where in the country you live, even if you don't have a dedicated allergen-free bakery, Um, And we can talk more about why being a dedicated bakery is so important for cross-contamination reasons. Um, But I wanted people, no matter where they live, no matter what kind of dedicated facilities were near them, that they could safely eat treats that were fresh baked and weren't the typical, you know, packaged products that sit on the supermarket shelf with a six-month shelf life. Gotcha. That's really interesting. So really just wanting to make things more accessible to everyone, because I, like you mentioned, I'm sure there's a lot you can access in the New York area, but yeah, it's great to, the idea of making it accessible to people all across the country. Yep. And even, even with the New York, I don't believe there's any that are fully dedicated top eight free. Um, they're definitely vegan with gluten-free options or nut-free, um, but it's really for people that suffer from more than one of these allergies or restrictions it's very hard to find something that's fully safe. For instance, the nut-free bakery I know of in New York City has gluten-free options, but it's not a dedicated gluten-free facility. So somebody like myself would have trouble eating from there. Um, And, you know, the name FOMO is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it kind of hits the nail on the head that I really wanted something that nobody has to be left out of, um, you know, to be as inclusive as possible. Yeah, I love the name you chose for your company, The Fear of Missing Out. I think that ties in perfectly with the allergies and it's got that like catchiness to it that people are really liking these days. Um, and then FOMO, of course, is just a popular phrase. Um, so I, when I saw that was your bakery name, I thought that was really... Thank you. Brittany, what are some... I'm sure that it's been like a lot of trial and error to find ingredient substitutes that would work well with the recipe. So... Um, in that process, what are some ingredient substitutes that you found you really like um, and some that maybe you don't like as much? Um, you know, I think every ingredient has its, you know, purpose and it has something it's good for. So I don't mean to knock any particular ingredients. I know something that I struggled with in formulating the recipes was figuring out what flour blend would work well for the products. And when you're not baking with traditional flour, I'm not sure how much experience either of you have with gluten-free baking, um, but there's definitely pros and cons to all of the alternative gluten-free flours you could use. And when you combine them, sometimes they have a stronger taste or a more mild taste. Um, For the cookie and brownie bites that I make in particular, I remember when I tried to use teff flour as one of the um, flour subs, it was just absolutely terrible. Um, And I have baked with teff for other purposes, you know, at home for the fun of it for myself. So it's definitely a great flour to use in, you know, certain products. But that was one in particular that I was like, oh boy, like I'm never even going to try this one again. Um, It was just awful. Um, And, you know, that was kind of one of the things that I struggled with because in gluten-free baking, I have no problem consuming nuts and so many gluten-free recipes that I use, you know, just at home 
we'll use almond flour, which is a really mm-hmm. great sub for gluten-free products. Mm-hmm. But obviously when you're catering to a nut-free audience as well, that wasn't an option. So um, it really was a lot of trial and error just to figure out, you know, what worked well for texture and taste and for overall composition, um, especially because, you know, flour is just one of the ingredients. It was finding replacements for what would serve the purpose of an egg or what would serve the purpose of butter um, or for the cookie cakes, you know, how do you make a buttercream icing with no dairy? Um, And especially because most of, you know, if you Google vegan buttercream icing recipes, pretty much every hit you're going to see is going to call for either a butter substitute um, like Earth Balance, which has soy in it, or it'll call for coconut oil. Um, And obviously, I wouldn't be using either of those. Um, So, you know, it was really fun, but it took about a year and a half of just trying different ingredients out and combining them and baking them and seeing you know, how they tasted and how they held up over time um, to ultimately come to the recipes because it was a bit of a challenge when you're, you know, getting rid of so many of the traditional ingredients at once. Um, Brittany, I feel like there's kind of two different personalities. Um, are you, do you enjoy that tinkering process or is that just more of a means of means to an end for you? I enjoy it to some extent. Like I'm not going to say that it was never frustrating at times, um, especially with something like baking, because it's not like you experiment and you try it and five minutes later, you know how it is, you know, you spend easily an hour and a half making a recipe, letting it bake, letting it cool. And when, you know, I would have days in a row of things not turning out exactly how I wanted them to, um, it was frustrating, but ultimately, you know, it was very rewarding and very well worth it. And, one of my favorite things that I've done with the products is um, before FOMO actually launched, there would be times where if I had people over or my daughter's first birthday party, for example, I just put out a platter of them and I didn't say a word. Most people that were there didn't know what they were. And after they were all gone, I started to tell people that, you know, they were gluten-free, dairy-free, free, nut-free, soy-free watching people's reactions to that is just amazing because so many times products that are allergen free or gluten free or vegan kind of get a bad rap and people have these preconceived notions of what they think they're going to taste like. Um, and I love proving people wrong with that. There's no better compliment than people saying they didn't know that this was allergen free. And that's really kind of at the heart of what FOMO baking is about. Um, because I wanted it to be something where if you're having a birthday party for your child, you could serve the 50 pack to all of the kids and everyone enjoy them together. And the kid or the kids that have the allergies aren't going to feel left out because they're eating a separate dessert that their parents brought from home. Um, but at the same time, the kids that don't have the allergies don't feel like missing out on something delicious or they're settling. Yes, um, we just did a taste test video um, that we're going to put up on our Instagram when closer to when the episode airs, and we had that same experience when we tried your bites. Um, I was nervous because I had some allergen-free baking that tasted like cardboard, <laughs> and so I admitted that in the video, and then we tasted yours, and I was I would buy these. Like, I don't have any allergy needs, but especially the brownie ones. I was like, I could just buy these just to have in a pantry as a snack. Yeah. And that's, that was really the goal. And it's funny that you use the word cardboard because I don't, I don't mean to be insulting, but especially in the gluten-free world, um, 
things are getting better now, but especially back when I was first diagnosed, so many products taste like cardboard and there's nothing more disappointing um, than, you know, I'd be craving something, I'd find a product and I'd be so excited to bring it home and I would take a bite and it's like, ugh, like this is not what I was hoping for, especially because I was diagnosed as an adult. So for certain products, I remember what the real things taste like. And I'm not saying that, you know, gluten-free or allergen-free isn't real. Um, you know, I use that term casually just to denote things that are made with the more traditional ingredients. Right. Um, but it was kind of with that basis in mind that I never wanted somebody to taste the FOMO baking products and have that reaction of, ugh, like, you know, I was really hoping for something different. I wanted the experience to be, oh my gosh, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Yeah, I really, um, in addition to the brownie bars, I really enjoyed the snickerdoodle. I think that was probably my favorite one. I could eat those all in one sitting. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I love watching and seeing what people like. I think that, you know, it's been less than a year since we launched, but I was always wondering if there was going to be one flavor that seemed to be the favorite amongst people. Mm-hmm. And it really seems that people gravitate towards what their interests are. You know, the really chocolate lovers love the brownies and the people that are not so into chocolate tend to stick more with the sugar, the snickerdoodle. And um, when customers first discover us, a lot of times they'll start off ordering a FOMO or a classic, which have either four or six of the flavors all together so they can try, you know, the different flavors all at once. And then it's kind of fun when you watch them reorder to see which ones are their favorites and which flavors do they keep going back to. Um, because people definitely tend to gravitate towards certain flavors, but there's no one flavor in particular that the most people want. That's interesting, yeah. Is there a certification process to become an allergen-free bakery, or is that more of a declaration? So it's more of a declaration. It's interesting. So for typical packaged products, um, there are certifications to become certified vegan or certified gluten-free, which are often processes that involve um, more mass production. You know, it involves testing different lot lines. And um, right now, you know, FOMO baking is my, you know, my baby in addition to my real child. Uh, <laughs> my real child that I'm due again in a couple months, but FOMO baking is my other child. And um, right now it's just me. So everything's made by hand and there are no production lines. There are no lot lines. There's nothing mass produced. So for me, it wasn't an option to become certified, um, but it's also interesting. I'm not sure how familiar you both are with kind of the regulatory environment in the United States with allergen labeling, but right now the FDA doesn't actually regulate any allergen-free claims other than gluten-free. So being gluten-free is actually defined as having less than 20 parts per million. But when you look at being nut-free or egg-free or soy-free or any other of the top eight allergen-free, there's no definition and there's no standard. And prior to launching FOMO Baking, I had a lot of casual conversations with people with allergies and people who have children that have allergies just to try to get a better understanding of what it is people struggle with and what people would want to see out in the marketplace. And I think that the lack of transparency for a lot of companies is very difficult for a lot of people and a lot of families Mm -hmm. because 
especially for somebody who has an autoimmune condition like celiac disease or has an allergy, especially a serious anaphylactic allergy, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times people can't tolerate cross-contamination or products made on shared equipment. And that's something that's totally unregulated. So it's up to the individual companies as to whether or not they want to disclose if a product is made on shared equipment or in a shared facility. And so for a lot of people and a lot of families, they actually have to spend, you know, hours upon hours calling companies trying to get this information to determine whether or not the products are safe for them. And that was one of the things that upon creating Vomo Baking, I wanted to be as transparent as possible. So I'm very vocal about the fact that um, the kitchen that I built is a completely dedicated facility that was built from scratch with all brand new equipment and that there are no allergens present in the facility. And that's taken to such an extreme level. The first thing that I do upon walking in every morning is going and changing my clothes just in case I had a cup of coffee or I ate breakfast at home prior um, to coming to the bakery so that, you know, even if I dropped a speck of food, I'm changing my clothing before I even enter the kitchen. And there's nothing allowed in the facility other than water. So um, there's no eating, there's no drinking, there's no coffee. Um, because I want to make it as safe from potential cross-contamination as possible. Mm-hmm. And I want people to know that. So, you know, in a similar vein to that, if you go on our website, under each product page, every single ingredient is listed because it shouldn't be a struggle. You know, I can easily say that we're top eight allergen free and we don't use sesame in our facility at all or in our product. But I'm very well aware that people have plenty other allergies and intolerances other than those ingredients. And I don't want people to have to spend time to try to figure out if something's safe. You know, I wanted it to be that they could quickly glance at a website and see exactly what's in their product and not have to worry about what they don't know about. Absolutely. Brittany, you, um, in talking about just the care that you put into making sure there's no cross-contamination, um, could you talk a little bit more about just the the day to day of running the the bakery um, or running the company and what that looks like? Are you the sole person kind of baking and managing anything, everything, or do you have other people who come and help you? It's just me right now. I actually I just hired somebody to help me part time and to help me um, once I give birth, since I know that realistically there's going to be at least a few weeks that I'm not going to be able to bake. Um, one of the things that people are kind of the most surprised about is just how physical it is. All of our ingredients are pretty much in 50 pound bags. Um, and at that, at this point at almost 30 weeks pregnant, there's just some physical limitations I'm having. Um, so I kind of reached the point where I was like, I need some help. I can't do this on my own right now. Um, but, um, I pretty much wear all of the hats. So it's, you know, certain days, um, I'm just, you know, trying to bake all the flavors and get the orders out. Everything we do is baked fresh to order. So it's not like if you place an order online, I have a stash of a thousand cookies that I ship out immediately. Everything's baked fresh and then shipped. Um, so I spend a great deal of time baking. Um, but then I also spend a lot of time, um, speaking with customers. Anytime somebody calls with a question about a product or about an ingredient, I really want people to feel as safe and comfortable as possible. So I give as much information as I can, but then when somebody calls and they say, you know, I know you said that all of your ingredients come from a dedicated facility or dedicated line, 
but I just want to double check. I'll give them the names of, you know, wherever we get the ingredients they're curious about from, because I want people to feel comfortable above all else. Um, you know, I want people to love the products and I'm so proud of how they taste and how much people love them. But I also want people to feel safe and I don't want people to have to worry about the unknowns since I know from speaking with so many people and so many families, that's such a source of stress and cookies are supposed to be a fun, happy thing. You know, <laughs> there doesn't need yes. to be. <laughs> um, but so it, it's been interesting. You know, I went from being a lawyer and not that my day was always the same, but it was very much a desk job and, you know, spending a lot of time writing and reading um, to doing, you know, so many different things and so many roles that are just more creative than what I'm typically used to and dealing with social media and, you know, trying to get the word out about the company and dealing with customer service. And um, it's kind of like if the hat exists, I wear it at one point or another. But it's also what keeps it interesting. Yeah. Speaking of um, social media, do you have any favorite like baking blogs or websites, accounts that are specific to alternative baking that you would recommend to others? I honestly really don't. You know, I have, I'm kind of old fashioned. I do have a lot of of cookbooks um, when I'm at home baking, but most of those are really all of those are gluten-free cookbooks just because in my own personal life, I don't have additional dietary restrictions. Um, so I'm always kind of looking for new things. I find that a lot of times with my own home baking, I can find, you know, if I find one cookbook that I absolutely love, I'll find that, you know, I'll tend to love a lot of different recipes from the same cookbook, but you know, it's, it's a little bit of a struggle to kind of find what you like and find what works for you. Yeah. Brittany, do you bake at all with your daughter? I do a little. I mean, she's only two and a half. Um, so she's, she likes to try to help me. Um, she's obviously, she's not able to come to the commercial bakery with me. Um, right. but when we're, she loves cookies and it's funny because she loves the FOMO baking bites. And there are times where I'll offer her, you know, a real traditional cookie or donut and she'll ask to have one of my bites instead, um, which is adorable and I love. Um, but, um, we, we bake together at home for the fun of it, especially we've been spending so much time at home, um, since, you know, the pandemic started in March that a lot of times, you know, if I'm craving a bagel, we'll make bagels or we'll make muffins, or we went through the phase of banana bread with the rest of the world. Um, (laughs) And, um, most of her helping involves stirring at this point. Um, she likes to stir things and, you know, it's a little less messy than trying to teach her to crack an egg. Um, but I do like that we have one of those um, toddler towers so she can kind of get up and stand on it and be at counter height. And she likes, you know, helping or if we're making, we made banana chocolate chip muffins. She'll like sprinkling the chocolate chips in. Um, so I like that she likes it. She's she's little, but she has a little bit of understanding. And she knows that when mommy goes to work, she goes to bake and then she brings home cookies. So she likes that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she really knows what I do, but she likes that cookies appear a lot of nights. So <laughs> I think she views that as a win. Mommy has a magical job. <laughs> How can listeners order your cookies? So everything is direct to consumer from us. So anyone anywhere in the country can go to FOMO, F-O-M-O, baking.com. And um, everything, as I had mentioned, is 
bake fresh and then ship directly to the customer. So they're getting it pretty much as fresh as it can possibly be. Um, and as you know, since you've now tasted them, um, they taste more like what you would go and get from a local bakery than from than the t- traditional packaged cookie that's, you know, crispier and a little bit more crumbly um, that you would buy from a supermarket. They definitely do. Yeah, I love that you ship them out fresh and don't just have them sitting there to pull off the shelf. Yeah, and they're also the perfect size too. We were talking about them. We were tasting them. Like if you want a quick treat or like you mentioned, having them for a birthday party for children, they're just like the perfect size for that. I'm glad you like them. Okay. So we have one final question. We've enjoyed asking this to all of our guests at the end of our interviews. So if you were a dessert, what would you be? That is a really hard question. (laughs) I, I love cookies clearly. Um, so that's one of my favorites and it will always be one of my favorites as our brownies. I think honestly what I've been craving lately and I do need to make, um, and this is the downside of having celiac disease and being pregnant because you can't just, you know, go and find whatever it is you're craving because it's fall because everywhere I look, I keep seeing apple cider donuts. Mm. Um, I think that's what I'd have to go with for right now. I think, you know, cookies and brownies are my ultimate favorite. And that's why at some point I hope to be able to expand the product offering that FOMO baking has to include other desserts. Um, but I started with cookies and brownies because those I just feel like are the staples and they just serve so many different purposes and there's so many different flavors for each craving. Um, but if I'm going to get more creative with my answer and not give the easy one that I, I would be what I did <laughs> Um, right now I'd have to go with, you know, an apple cider donut just because it's that time of year, you know, pumpkin picking and apple picking. Absolutely. That's a great answer. That's one we haven't gotten before. (laughs) It hasn't been fall long enough. I feel like if you give it another week or two, more people will have (laughs) have to start changing a little more. Well, Brittany, we have enjoyed learning about you and about FOMO. Um, Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. This was fun, and I'm so glad you guys enjoyed the bites. Yes, they were wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, it's time for us to wrap up this batch of procrastinating. We hope we provided some food for thought for your next procrastinating project. As always, the links and photos discussed in this episode can be found in our show notes at procrastinatingpodcast.com. Procrastinate with us on Facebook and Instagram while we wait for our next episode to rise. We release new episodes first and third Fridays on your favorite platform. Tune into the next batch of Procrastinating for another alternative baking segment on alternative flowers, an update to our Around the World segment where we visit Morocco, another update to our March Madness competition, and one of our favorites, Pop Quiz. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rachel Rhodes. And I'm Louisa Gonzalez. Until next time, stay sweet. This has been Procrastinating. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a good review. You can also subscribe to us on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many more. You can also subscribe to our RSS feed directly from our website at ProcrastinatingPodcast.com. Also, feel free to follow us and give us your feedback on social media, on Instagram at, at ProcrastinatingPodcast, and Facebook at Facebook.com slash ProcrastinatingPodcast. If you'd like to share your procrastinating stories and photos with us, you can send an email to procrastinating at Yahoo.com. Procrastinating is hosted and created by Rachel Rhodes and Luisa Gonzalez, produced and edited by Raul Ceballos, theme music by Alex Walker. Smith and show artwork by Rob Demers. Hey.